Hi, everyone. Thanks again for downloading this new episode of the podcast. Um, This is a bit of a special episode. Uh, Last week at the University of Technology, Sydney, we had the International Conference TQC uh, for 2018. And during the conference, an industry session was organized uh, with five major quantum computing companies from around the world. Uh, So this is basically an audio recording of that uh, conversation that we had between the panelists uh, and the audience. Now, while the panel members were actually hooked up to microphones and the new audio came through reasonably clearly, the audience was not. So basically, I've gone through the uh, audio and paraphrased the questions that were being asked for the audience. Uh, so hopefully you'll enjoy this episode. Thank you. Okay, thank you everyone uh, for staying a bit later tonight for uh, the industry session. And we've got representatives from five uh, quantum computing companies. Uh, basically all the software people, so this is going to be a, a software-heavy kind of talk, but we will get a little bit into the hardware. Um, so the way that this is going to be structured is each uh, of our panellists are going to do basically a quick five-minute overview. Um, and that's for basically the uninitiated, for those of you who don't know what any of these companies are up to. Um, but hopefully that won't be too many of you. And then we're basically going to get into the discussion. And it will basically just be the six of us up here and... I expect a lot of audience participation for this. So I want questions. If not, we're going to revoke your drinks card for tomorrow. Okay? If we don't get enough questions as decided by the local organisers, your drinks tomorrow are gone. So to begin with, I'd like to invite Maria from Danadu to give us a bit of an overview of what's going on in Toronto. Cool. Okay. Um, and does this work? Does it work? Yes. Should, yeah. Okay, cool. So I'm representing Xanadu. Uh, Xanadu is a um, relatively young quantum computing startup based in Toronto, and um, we only started last year, and I um, started working there in August like, of last year. And we've got, um, basically, so, so our niche in quantum computing is that we do photonic quantum computing. I'll get back to that in a second. And what we're offering is like a full-stack solution, so we have a hardware team and a software team to like, kind of do the, do the whole Monty, full Monty. This is the team. I'm sorry about, these are like the business slides. I always find it funny that they have the confidential and then they, you know, so this is like the world-class team. But but however, it's really, really a nice team that we have there and we're growing quite a lot. So every two weeks, there's actually someone you're joining at the moment. And uh, the cool thing is that each and every one of these guys are actually really experts from their PhD and from their research in this one particular field. So, and we're all like kind of working towards the same goal. So it's, it's quite a like very enabling environment to work in. And I just have to say a couple of words about photonic quantum computing because um, actually when Michelle gave the talk, uh, photonic computing, quantum computing wasn't even on, on the summary of like potential technologies. And there's a bit of like a, a review that came around from Terry Rudolph saying like why I believe in photonic quantum computing. It starts with the sentence, photonic quantum computing is the ugly duckling of quantum computation actually. And I thought it was dead before I joined Xanadu. But I start actually like revising this, obviously, and not only because you love what you're doing after a while anyways, but, but also because it has a lot of like interesting factors about it. So if you think about like, so also there's like a lot missing, but if you say like um, the spectrum of technologies is kind of somewhere in between like what Microsoft are trying to do with topological qubits, where there's a lot to do still in like the physical systems to like actually like control qubits. Um, but once this is done, there's a lot of benefits you have maybe from like having nice error correcting codes and stuff. And on the other end of the spectrum is like kind of Google and like Rigetti and like the superconducting qubits. 
because there we've got like, you can already boast like 70 qubits and stuff like that. But however, there might be a lot of problems like in terms of connectivity, that things have to be like cooled down quite a lot and like error correction when we go up to like universal quantum computation. And I would say the photonic is actually nicely in the middle of the two because um, there are actually a couple of like really interesting things about it, which is, for example, the whole like um, implementations, like so integrated photonics is quite far developed in the industry. You can put a lot of like like elements onto a chip already nowadays. There's like quite like low losses, and losses are kind of the errors at this stage of, of quantum computation for us. It's room temperature. It has the speed of light. So this sounds actually like a couple of really good things, but obviously a lot of things haven't been developed yet. So our biggest challenge at the moment is to get squeezing factors up and kind of squeezed light is basically how you make light quantum, if you can say that. And it's interesting because you can build big uh, high entangled states and then do something like cluster computation. Um, second thing, but then I stop there, is like, um, what's cool about it is we're not, so we heard just now about uh, GKP, like a protocol of putting qubits into photonic quantum computers, but we are actually interested in CV quantum computing, so continuous variable quantum computing, where we use like observables that have continuous uh, spectra, and um, I hope I can convince you tomorrow actually that you can do some cool things, because I think we found like a way to encode a quantum neural network in this architecture, so it's quite cool. Last sentence is uh, maybe about myself, because um, so I'm actually by training a political scientist, which is maybe a bit strange, but uh, I had kind of like this hobby of like quantum physics and did a bachelor's and master's degree, and then ended up, um, because the only place where I could find actually like field research in political science, what I was doing, and a, good, a very good quantum group was South Africa in Durban, and so I kind of emigrated like maybe in 2011, just after the World Cup, sadly. And then, um, yeah, and I kind of like ended up there, and then I did my PhD, and being a bit like confused about what I want to do anyways, I, I chose this very strange topic of quantum machine learning, which lots of people say I shouldn't do because it didn't exist like really then. And this has really blown up in the last couple of years, and maybe this is also the reason then like now that I finished my PhD, like all of a sudden there was a lot of interest in that skill, and, and this is how I got to Xanadu. Yeah. Great, thank you very much. So next up, for a bit of a summary, we're going to have the local representative. Uh, Michael Hush from uh, Q Control. Uh, so, Michael, if you want to uh, take over and let us know what you guys are up to. Sorry, the slides are all lined up. Um, so, hi, I'm Mike, uh, Michael Hush. I'm the lead quantum control engineer at Q Control. Um, Q Control is also relatively young in the new ecosystem of quantum computing companies. So, we started at the beginning of the year. Um, and we are, yeah, the CEO is Michael Biersick, who's at the University of Sydney, and we're also physically situated on the University of Sydney. So our aim at Q-Control is to um, basically provide, become the trusted source of control solutions for everyone out there trying to develop a quantum computer. Um, the, everyone in this room is attempting to basically get our quantum computers to a point where they solve a particularly useful problem, I guess, something that the someone who has money wants to actually give us that money for to have access to that quantum computer. Um, that's the big aim. But the challenge that all the quantum computers are currently facing is the presence of errors and noise in their systems, such that um, the, the basically coherence goes away over time. So what we do at Q-Control is we provide uh, control solutions which extend the lifetime of those qubits. Um, and attempt to basically, uh, our initial target is providing robust solutions to control such that if you have some type of noise process which you're not necessarily, you're not necessarily doing measurements to do feedback, we can provide the correct kind of dynamical controls on your qubits to mediate, like, uh, mitigate the effect of that noise in the environment. Um, so, yep. 
So just, just to give a picture of where we sit, so currently conventional computers have an error rate on the order of 0.000000000000001%, while quantum computers are currently on the order of 0.1%. Um, I guess I brought this slide up in particular because I wanted to kind of make a point that uh, we're all facing a huge technical challenge here with the production of these quantum computers, and everyone has different um, advantages and disadvantages, but the current ecosystem that's developing in quantum computing, I think everyone's trying to contribute on some layer to help this out. So we've got a variety of people trying different hardware techniques, uh, different types of hardware here at the front to try and get the, your, like, your T1 times as long as possible. Then Q control exists at just that layer above the physical hardware, where we're trying to, say, uh, use control techniques to extend the T2 time of your system. Then on top of that, you want to use the actual gates. You might want to make the algorithm as short as possible, and there are other startups in the space working on that. And then finally, there will be like error correction at the top level. And we're really trying to design uh, control solutions which like, complement on every level of that stack. Um, and if we all work together, hopefully we'll get to 0.0000001%. Um, so just to, for the record, so everything that we're developing at Q-Control is flexible on all the platforms that have been mentioned so far. So we can address control problems in superconducting qubits, photonic systems, and also in uh, cold ions. And um, our first release, so our first product is going to be released this October. Um, I look for, everyone should sign up right now on the website if you want to get a first look at what we're doing. Um, and we have, this will be available um, to select people, including academics, if you want to try it out. Um, and then further on, we're going to be provide, uh, sorry, just quickly, the Black Opal is our uh, software as a service offering. So it's basically, you can log on online and basically design controls yourself. And then later on, we're going to be developing Boulder Opal, which is basically our automated control solution. So once you trust that the control solutions we're making make sense, we can take care of that whole design process automatically um, ourselves with Boulder Opal. And we're also developing Fire Opal for applications of the same sort of technologies and controls for sensing and defense. Um, yeah, so that's uh, the aim of Q-Control. Wonderful. Thanks, Michael. Uh, so our... Sorry. Oh, yeah, sorry. <laughs> so anyway, Nick, uh, Ruben from Rigetti, uh, has graciously come all the way to Sydney. Um, yeah, take the Good evening. Um, so I'm Nicholas Rubin. Uh, I'm visiting from Rigetti. So uh, Rigetti is a startup in Berkeley, California. Uh, we are venture-backed. Uh, started in 2013 by Chad Rigetti. Uh, we have three locations, uh, two in Berkeley and one in Fremont, uh, and we have about 120 employees now, so this, this slide is actually a little bit out of date. And uh, I'm going to tell you a little bit about kind of our objective and how we're actually going to do that. And so the objective, of course, is to deliver quantum computing over the cloud. So uh, Rigetti is a full-stack quantum computing company. Uh, some people have said that already. Um, in the Bay Area, you usually have to explain this to venture capitalists and what this actually means. Uh, when you say full stack, usually a company, like a software company or even a hardware company, hits a couple of these buckets, but not all of them. And so I think we all can agree that for quantum computing, the computing stack doesn't really exist yet. And so it was pretty obvious to us when we were thinking about the company and what it should be uh, that we're going to have to do all of these things. And so. We do uh, design of chips, uh, so doing automated uh, simulation uh, that can go into fab, and we have our own fab. Uh, we design the systems to control these chips, so the firmware effectively for these devices. 
uh, and then software and how a user would actually interface with one of these devices, and on top of that, applications. And the applications area is kind of where I work. Uh, but I will explain a little bit of our hardware. So uh, if you're familiar with uh, superconducting qubit labs, this picture sh should uh, hopefully look, uh, well, this double picture should probably look uh, familiar. Uh, it looks like a superconducting qubit lab. Those big white canisters are dilution refrigerators. The chips sit at the bottom. And you can kind of see uh, control racks here. You know, we have microwave control. And uh, we actually use off-the-shelf uh, software-defined radios. Uh, so. Uh, we don't have to, you know, give Agilent a ton of money uh, every time we want to control a new qubit. Uh, but we are developing more uh, on the control side. Um, here we actually have, if you look closer, we have six steel fridges. This is a little out of date as well. We actually have two more in the back corner. And this uh, lab serves as our uh, research center and also deployment. And so if you access one of the Rigetti machines, you're accessing one of these devices here. Uh, this is a very... Uh, pretty picture of our fab. Uh, it always looks this clean. It is a clean room. Uh, and uh, so we wanted to have a place where we could actually improve our material processing so we can improve the quality of the qubits that we were making. Uh, and so it was pretty obvious that we were going to need to build a fab that was dedicated to uh, development of uh, 3D integrated circuits. Okay, so uh, a little bit of hardware. Rigetti is making 3D quantum integrated circuits. Uh, these are aluminum on silicon. Uh, we use through silicon vias for isolation. Uh, and then we have a capping process that draws fields out of the, di or out of the substrate and into the vacuum, uh, which helps lifetimes. And it also lets us do 3D signal delivery. Um, if you would like to talk more about hardware, I can put you in touch with someone at Rigetti who uh, knows a lot more about it. Uh, this is actually a zoom out of one of the chips. This is an 8-qubit chip, uh, a chip just like this you can actually currently access uh, online. It is a mix of tunable and fixed-frequency transmons uh, that are capacitive-coupled, so the coupling is actually always on. Uh, so it just goes fixed-tunable, fixed-tunable. And we can uh, layer a, a larger lattice. In fact, we had a 19-qubit chip up on the cloud for a while. It is uh, no longer there. Uh, but uh, we're pretty open about the performance of these devices. Uh, we actually, all of the software we use for bring-up and things like that, uh, we actually would like to provide to users. Um, and so ideally, you could go and validate any of the numbers in terms of fidelity that we say uh, or we're advertising in terms of the chip. Okay, so. Uh, the kind of at the highest level of the computing stack uh, is, is kind of what we were calling forest. And this is the encapsulation of the entire uh, way that someone might interact with one of the devices. It has an applications layer, and that goes all the way down to something, either a simulation of a quantum device or, or the actual thing. Um, this diagram is actually just to indicate that we kind of went to a client-server model, and uh, most of it is open source. And so we have an instruction set, we have a higher level language, we have compilers. Um, you can talk to me more about that later. Um, and uh, I think this is, this is actually just a, a little bit more detail uh, in terms of what we have. We have local simulators and cloud simulation uh, capabilities if you'd like to run larger circuits and experiment uh, kind of with the overall architecture. And like I said, most of this is open source, so pull requests are welcome. Great. Thanks a lot, Nick. Uh, so next we have Christopher from Microsoft. All right. Um, no. uh, so we'd like to start off by saying, you know, we, we're trying to build a quantum computer, and for a lot of different reasons. There's a lot of things we either um, very strongly believe we can get an advantage in or have really good evidence along those lines, 
problems that matter at a real societal level, things that can affect um, energy production that goes into food, how we make food, uh, solving significant environmental issues such as uh, carbon capture, improve our understanding of material science by allowing us to simulate new and interesting physics, and as mentioned earlier, applications to machine learning as well. Um, so this really does demand a, a unique approach, something that we can really use to address all of those uh, large society scale applications. Um, and there's a couple different components of that. One is we're trying to build topological qubits. Um, doing so, we expect that the error rates associated with will be much, much lower than um, with other methods that will allow us to save a lot in terms of error correction overhead um, and put us a lot closer to where we need to be for those applications. We have a team around the world working toward that. We have labs around the world working to build topological qubits. Um, we have, uh, it, where I'm based in Seattle, we have a lot of people working both on the research side, coming up with new algorithms, on the software development side, and I'll speak more to that in a minute. Um, to really make something that works end to end to deliver those applications. Um, you've heard the term full stack a couple times, you'll hear it again now, because when I say something like end to end and something like full stack, there's something else really important that that means. When we're running an actual quantum computer, as we build up the hardware to do that, there's computation that's involved at every level of that. It's easy to say we need to be able to program a quantum computer, and that's absolutely true, but it's not all of it. We also need all of the software stack sitting above that, at the cryogenic level that interacts with that hardware. We need the high-level classical host to be able to schedule to and from. Uh, and we know that there's a lot of algorithms like phase estimation where you really get a lot of improvement from feedback between those levels. Uh, so it really does motivate that as we build up to attack those society-level applications, when we say full stack, that means we have to be thinking both about classical and quantum logic at the same time as we build through all of this. Um, and the main thing that we do, it, you know, one of the main things that I work on along with the rest of uh, the quantum architectures and computation group to realize that is the quantum development kit. That's one of the main ways that we try and support that full stack approach to allow us to reason both about classical and quantum logic in a way that addresses research needs and builds up infrastructure to attack those problems. Primarily, the quantum development kit includes a new language, Q-sharp, for expressing quantum algorithms in a way that means you can specify all of the low-level details, but that you don't have to always think in those terms. That allows you to think at a higher level um, run against local simulation now and local cost estimation so that you can tell how well your approach scales, what kinds of costs are going to be needed for a particular algorithm. Uh, the quantum development kit uh, standard libraries are all open source available on GitHub. We welcome community contributions and have gotten a number that have been uh, really valuable and we thank the community for that. Uh, and we know that programming quantum systems at the moment is still somewhat hard, so we're trying to make that easier by making integrations for powerful development tools such as Visual Studio 2017 and Visual Studio Code 
that work where you are on Windows, Mac OS, or Linux. Um, if you're interested, um, you please go download the QDK and give it a look. Uh, we've got a lot of documentation to back it up. And uh, there's a whole bunch more that you can do, uh, like signing up for newsletter and everything to learn more about our approach. Thank you much. Wonderful. Thanks, Chris. And finally, we have the one man who works for a company so big that he didn't need to provide slides. So, Dave from Google. That's right. That's right. We don't have, uh, I don't have the professional looking uh, marketing slides, so I apologize for that. Um, so, I'm Dave Bacon. Uh, I used to work in quantum computing. I used to write a blog that balanced the uh, intellectual rigor of Scott Aronson pretty well. Um, and uh, now I'm back to bring you guys back down a little bit. Um, so the Google uh, team is uh, divided into sort of two main groups. There's a, a hardware team that's in Santa Barbara uh, run by John Martinez. And then um, there's a theory team. Uh, and Harmit Nevin is sort of the main person who is in, in charge of that that's in Los Angeles. Uh, I am currently in Seattle. I'm sort of a lone wolf up there. Um, Google is trying to build a superconducting uh, circuit quantum computer. Um, we have a 72-qubit device uh, that is you know, in the fridge and being tested. Uh, I would say I will, because I don't have professional slides that I have to follow, I can sort of maybe contrast a little bit with, with what we're trying to focus on. Um, our goal, as everybody knows, is the horrible uh, quantum supremacy uh, uh, goal, right? We're trying to build a machine that is hard to uh, simulate. Uh, uh, you know, naively, uh, and I, be I believe that's a, a very worthy goal. But the reason why we think that interest is interesting is because after that goal, uh, it's the first time well you'll be able to start running programs that you couldn't previously do, and so um, you know, or that you you just have to use a ton of resources to do, right? So uh, we feel that there's going to be an interesting set of you know, there's a potential for an interesting set of algorithms in that your space. So the team is focused on what John Presco called the NISQ, noisy intermediate scale quantum algorithms. Uh, and we were really are focused on, is there something in the short term uh, that you can do on those types of computers with maybe small <coughs> amount of error mitigation, not fully error corrected? Uh, and that changes your perspective because you're, you're asking a question of something about, you know, we don't have any theoretical reason to really believe that right now. Uh, we just know that we're into this new sort of machine, and so we're hoping uh, that we can discover new things there. Um, so uh, uh, that's in contrast with, you know, sort of thinking uh, long-term air correction. So we're certainly uh, working towards that, and everybody believes that we need an air corrected machine, and we have a large part of our group that's, that's focused on that, and also focused on when you have air correction, getting those algorithms down lower. But a lot of our focus is on the short-term, you know, let's get to as good a machine as we can get. Uh, and uh, try to figure out if we can discover things in that, um, in that, uh, in that space. So because I don't have any slides, I, I will end there. I will advertise tomorrow. I'll be talking about some of the software that we've been developing. Uh, so if you're around tomorrow, uh, come out early. You can tell I'm loud, so I'll wake you up. Um, and uh, and uh, you'll get to hear a little bit about some of the software that we've been building to, to try to answer these questions about NISQ processors. Wonderful, thanks. So I thought I'd structure now the fun part where people can go back and forth with questions. Um, we've got a pretty good representative group of people here of this sort of full stack approach all the way from the hardware up to sort of the top level programming languages. So I thought we'd structure the discussion. We'll start at the bottom and we'll just slowly work our way up to the top. So especially 
um, the people here are representing hardware vendors. Um, the current chips that you have, so Nick, you showed a slide of the, the 19 qubit chip and the associated error rates with that. Um, if we were to sort of talk candidly about where you think you can push it in terms of how many qubits are you targeting, what error rates do you think you can get to in the next couple of years? Are you hoping to get to the supremacy regime, you know, 50 to 100 qubits at less than 0.1%, or do you think it's going to take a little bit longer? Uh, we certainly are targeting uh, machines of that size. Uh, I think that's actually a pretty common uh, target for a lot of the hardware vendors. Um, in terms of the error rates, I think it's, it's definitely required uh, mm -hmm. to, to get there. If There might be applications that we can kind of look at uh, at maybe lower fidelities, but uh, it seems from our, at least on the theory side where I'm coming from, uh, we're going to need fidelities that are close to the kind of supremacy benchmarks uh, level to do quantum chemistry or something like that. And so it is certainly on the roadmap to, to be going towards machines of that size. So you're sitting at about roughly average, as you said, about 90% at the moment for your two qubit gate fidelity. So you've got an order of magnitude or two to go. Um, those numbers, are they comparable to, say, the superconducting systems at the moment that Google's doing or IBM's doing? Dave, you might want to chime in on this. <laughs> I mean, I think we're all, uh, you know, a lot of the groups have demonstrated good two-qubit gates before. So mm -hmm. I think we're all sort of heading in that right direction. Everybody has a unique approach. Um, you know, I'm, I, 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 I'm, I want to say exactly where we're going to be because I just don't know, right? We just, right. we just don't know. It is fascinating to watch, as a theorist, to watch uh, the progress and to watch how the people who are working on it do this thing where they switch back between engineering and science all the time, where they, they're engineers to try to, you know, they're trying to, they're, well, they start out with the science problem, which is that their gates are crappy for some reason, and they try to figure out what it is. They have hypotheses, they figure out, and then they have to engineer it, and then there's another obstacle. So it's constantly doing that, and they're constantly flipping back. So it's, it's fascinating to watch that, and it gives you confidence as a theorist to watch them switch back and forth that they're just going to continue to make the same sort of progress they've been making over the last few years. So. But I mean, the bristle cone chip is designed to hit sort of this supremacy regime. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's the hope. The, that's the hope. That's where, that's where it's heading. Hope is not a plan. Mm -hmm. That's the, the SREs that Google say. Uh, <laughs> um, so, you know, it, it, there's just a lot of work of getting everything working at the same time. Um, but, you know, I think the team is still charging at it, so. You can't give us any estimates? I mean, I'm not a betting Sometime man, in the next decade. You. Oh, it's definitely, I'm, I'm, I'm much more optimistic about that. I mean, I suspect, I, you know, if you want to, my own personal opinion is we're going to start seeing these machines in the next few years, and then we'll be able to start experimenting with them, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I don't, I don't see that not happening right now, but. So, I mean, Maria, especially with Xanadu and optics uh, as a fundamental technology, as you said, it wasn't really on Michelle's slides from earlier before, and, and some people have discounted optics as a viable technology to go to scale, but tell us a little bit, as, as Xanadu is so young, as to are you, are you going to try and go down the same route that, say, the Googles and the Rigettis are going to do? Or? Yeah, I think that's kind of one of the ingredients that VCs also want to hear, like quantum mm -hmm. supremacy and how. And mm -hmm. I think our like, internal goal is like, let's try to do this in a two-year framework. And obviously, for CV setups or photonic setups, quantum supremacy is very much based on boson sampling. But but so, so first of all, the idea is not to like focus only on that because in the end we want an application. So even if we, uh, actually that's also something like I personally like think more and more about uh, sometimes in industry, especially like in applications like machine learning, speed ups are actually not the only thing that mm -hmm. you can do that are interesting. So, um, or constant speed ups are also very, very interesting. So we try to not to like only focus on this. 
they will be like more like the boson sampling or Gaussian boson sampling setup. Yeah. Right, because you've still got to deal with errors in a specific way and get your squeezing rates up and everything like that. I mean, in terms of the hardware development, again, we've seen a few software papers come out of Xanadu, mm -hmm. not so much on the hardware front yet. Yeah, we'll, we'll soon start. Yeah. Soon yeah. start. I want to kind of have a good one. The first one has right. to be a good one. Yeah. So, I mean, getting onto the, the concept of error rates and getting these things down as low as you can go, I suppose, Michael, that's where you come in. Yeah. So, I mean, what are you hoping for in the software that you're developing to support this? I mean, how much do you think can be done just by tweaking around with pulse yeah. shaping and, and other such techniques? I think, I think we're, well, we're obviously quite hopeful about this, but it's, it's true to say that um, there has not been an extensive use of... Um, the kind of robust control approaches to trying to extend the fidelity of um, these, particularly the two qubit gates, which possibly have the biggest benefit. Um, it'll be an ongoing process to figure out if uh, we can get the benefits there, um, because the kind of controls that QControl will be developing initially will really target extending those T2 times. Mm -hmm. And then there's always this challenge of uh, the trade-off between the T1 and the T2 times that are available in the hardware. But we're certainly optimistic that um, there will be solutions that we can deliver which will really make a big difference in terms of the actual total fidelity of an operation. Um, and in, in, in pushing towards that, we're really also trying to, um, it's great to kind of design these controls on paper, but a big part of what uh, makes, a very big part of our company's approach is we want to completely automate this process and directly basically take the data from the experiment to design the controls to make sure that they really are customized to deliver the kind of outcomes that we might think they would deliver theoretically. Um, and so by taking a, a software approach where we're kind of giving these companies direct access to the software which takes the data, automatically optimizes, and then delivers the solution, we're hopeful that by kind of, instead of just having a theoretical demonstration, we can really translate that to a direct um, impact on their experiments. So I mean, how much, Obviously, if, if all the black opal and, so, uh, and these packages are applicable to a vast variety of technologies, I mean, how much, how much work do you actually have to do to say, okay, well, we've got to tailor this to the specific dynamics of iron traps and superconductors and dots and... Right, so currently we basically, for individual qubit operations, all the technologies are mature enough that uh, there, everyone has a similar set of knobs to turn. And so really, we can capture all the dynamics in the same framework. Um, what we've been doing as a company, though, is then we've developed a, like a larger numerical package to handle uh, any multi-qubit system, which we kind of developed ourselves. And then uh, the current approach is we're basically tailoring that for each system. So in terms of two-qubit systems, yes, we need to kind of tailor a specific solution for the parametric gate or for the um, like a, a, a cross-resonance gate or in ions and moment Sorensen gate. Mm -hmm. um, so although we're developing the numerical package in the background to cover everything, we really do have to tailor it for these two qubit gates, which are a bit more specialized. Right, so I mean, Dave, Nick, how much is this already done within your systems? Do you just apply naive gates or is there a, a specific amount of work that's done to tailor pulses for fidelity? Or? No, we, we, we are certainly, uh, doing uh, many things to improve the quality of the gates actually at the software and control level. And so we, we're using kind of the standard uh, techniques for, for quantum control. Um, I think there's a lot of room and to improve that. Uh, and that's actually one of the areas that kind of those, the engineers within Rigetti actually are working towards uh, very often. Yeah, I mean, recently you guys demonstrated a nice sweet spot you could get where you could get some low order cancellation of some errors in your system. Um, so th there's definitely progress happening within the company mm -hmm. and also in Q-Control, but 
I guess we're hopeful that we'll be able to add a little bit extra improvement to what you're already demonstrated. Yeah. Do you feel that a, a lot of the error rates that you're seeing right now is more a function of control errors and isolating a system well enough, or is it fabrication and you know, sort of the structures that you have to manufacture around it? That's a good question. So like, like Dave, my view is actually from the theory side. And so uh, kind of I get this you know, view of like, well, everything is kind of bad. And then it gets better a month later. And then it gets better a month later. And, and so uh, I, I guess I see kind of all of them kind of improving simultaneously. I don't know if I could put one, my finger on one particular problem. Um, but they are all rapidly improving. Yeah, I guess on that point, like, there might be different problems over time that become the biggest problem, you know what I mean? So as long as everyone's working on the stack to improve every issue, mm -hmm. um, they'll all complement in a way so that over time we'll get to a better performance. Great. So, I mean, before we start moving slowly up the stack, I mean, Chris, I don't know if you want to say anything about the anionic approach. Uh, it's certainly an interesting bet by Microsoft in terms of, do these things exist yet? Do we have good evidence that these things exist from what you've seen? Well, I mean, there are a number of experiments that are um, dating back approximately six years now that uh, show more and more signatures of anionic physics in these systems. Uh, so I think it's a pretty reasonable thing to say that the, the Majorana um, physics that we're trying to exploit to make qubits is a correct description of these devices in mm -hmm. that sense. Um, but then the, it comes down to trying to actually make a qubit out of that in a way that we can then control and use as, as a qubit. Um, it's not my area in particular, so I can't speak to it in great detail, but uh, what I can say is we keep seeing new results out of our labs from around the world and are excited to uh, share those once, once we're uh, confident. Right, and so. just, I mean, just to clarify for people who might not know with these antibiotics, the whole idea is not to remove error correction it's to heavily suppress using topological effects to maybe get down to 0. 0.00000 whatever percent. It, it, yes, totally agreed. And that there's, it, we strongly believe that there will always be a need for error correction of some kind at some level, um, no matter how good the underlying qubits are. Um, we're pursuing Majorana qubits because that will buy us several orders of magnitude in those error rates, which means the demands we make of error correction are significantly less. See what happens. So you violated the first rule of Seattle's quantum beer night. What's so that? when we have beer night in Seattle, where, where we often have Microsoft people, the first rule is we never ask Microsoft about the qubits. <laughs> the Microsoft people never ask the Google people about supremacy. Um, <laughs> well, we're a long way from Seattle. <laughs> Tell me about it. Yeah. <laughs> so before we move on, please, anyone want to chime in at this level of dis the discussion? Okay. Yeah. For the other systems, there seems to be a sort of a common language of error rates related to CNOTs and Hanamard gates, etc. Is the same going to be true for these Majorana modes? I, so um, a lot of my academic background before starting at Microsoft was um, in quantum characterization, verification, and validation. How do we put numbers like, um, for instance, uh, the fidelity numbers that we saw earlier? Um, and from that perspective, it is a challenge trying to think about what are the right ways that we characterize and report um, Majorana qubits as we bring them online. Uh, that there are certain things that we expect will be it's certain operations that are 
um, fidelity limited in other systems that we expect will be literally perfect uh, and ideal in Majorana qubits. Um, and then other things which will be a little bit more difficult. So it's uh, trying to adapt ideas from QCVV so that we can report numbers um, to ourselves so that we're not fooling ourselves about how good they are. Uh, and then so that as we report those numbers to the community, they are numbers that mean something. Uh, that, that is a challenge and it's something that we're working toward. Yeah, you know. For Nick, was wondering more about resource-intensive tasks being incorporated into the software interface stack, involving characterization and, and seeing how these things work. Can you speak a little more as to what Rigetti's plans are? Um, probably not publicly. Uh, so, <laughs> but uh, we yeah, we, uh, we we should have um, kind of the current model is is through over the internet and and as we we've talked about uh, before, that's a a, a taxing way to do high-performance computing, um, you know, sending photons, uh, you know, across the, you know, over the ocean is, is a pretty slow process, um, and so uh, that 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 system uh, will be evolving in some sense, and so uh, it should kind of speed up a lot of the uh, tomography procedures if someone is taking that kind of at the or doing those procedures at the highest level of the stack, uh, but. I can't say anything else about, about uh, other layers being opened up right at this time. Anything else? Oh, the beer tokens are not looking good at this stage. <laughs> so as we're moving a bit further up the stack, so we've got, especially with Rigetti, Google, and Xanadu, there is this idea of, of starting to open up your platforms over the cloud, so people trying to log on, play a little bit of games with uh, with the qubits that you're, you're actually manufacturing. So in each of your cases, I mean, what was the primary motivation for it? I mean, in my experience, there's maybe three main reasons to do it. One's to show off. Um, the second one is we don't really know any algorithms at sort of this NISQ level. So please, please, please somebody else find one for me. And the third option might be because everyone else is doing it. I mean, is there any other? I think there's yeah. maybe a fourth option because you have to show some outputs, especially if yeah. you don't have the hardware yet. So you can, no. I think uh, maybe there's actually also another idea behind it, which is really that at the moment the the atmosphere between you know startups and companies are still very like collaborative. I mean, you see that between like Google and Microsoft for BNI, but it's also really this this idea that we can only lose from like closing up at the moment, mm -hmm. which is quite nice if you work there and you've got a very scientific mindset and you actually want to share and open everything because at this like stage of like the whole developments, you can still actually like kind of like um, work along like your moral code of actually producing open source and producing mm -hmm. shared knowledge. Yeah. Because I know Rigetti does have a strong sort of motivation and advocacy point of making this all open source, making it all basically accessible from the code base all the way through to the actual application on your devices. Yeah, so we strongly believe that uh, there will be applications kind of at, at these, the, for these NISC machines, uh, maybe in quantum simulation, maybe in ML, uh, we're not sure. But I think opening, we, we strongly believe that opening it up to the community is probably the best way to uh, actually identify those applications. And so we actually put a lot of effort into making it accessible and being very open. And I think actually that might be one of the, uh, the bigger reasons to be very open and put a device on the cloud and have it accessible is to actually foster 
foster the community to start actually playing with it, understanding what they can do with it, and developing algorithms. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So when's Google going to do it? Do what? <laughs> <laughs> Open up your chips on the cloud. It's coming. It's coming. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, I think we, I think you're, you know, you're, some of your, your ideas were a little bit cynical. <laughs> oh, yeah, I'm sure yeah, yeah. about that. But I think, I think, you know, the other question is where else are you going to, you know, like, you're going to have to connect to it somehow, right? And mm -hmm. there's no reason to not do that. Um, I think we are very focused on, you know, optimizing for discovery in that near, near term space. And, you know, frankly, the academic community is, you know, it's extremely strong and broad, but, um, you know, I, I'm an old man, so I've seen it change over the years. Uh, and it's going to have to undergo a new change because the type of things that you're going to be doing with these NISQ machines is going to be very different than, you know, I worked on the hidden subgroup problem. Very different. You're not going to be, you're not going to be doing that, right? So I think there's going to be another shift. Uh, and, you know, it's an exciting time to be a graduate student. My measure uh, for what we're trying to achieve in the long run is get as many graduate students running things on the machines as possible. I don't care about you professors. Sorry. You guys are fossilized. Uh, but graduate students uh, are our sweet spot. I mean, we've seen that, that certainly these, these platforms and these sort of cloud-based interfaces are being used heavily in teaching, for example. I mean, I know the IBM one has been used quite a few times in Waterloo and places like that. Um, you're hopeful that, that this kind of, int more as a training element even as well as, as trying to find new applications uh, to run on these machines. I mean, how heavily are you pushing that aspect of it, um, or at least in terms of your internal thinkings? I mean, if anyone wants Altruism to mention that. Altruism is not the main, the main reason for that, but I just want to say, I, I saw, we had a student in, in South Africa who was seven, uh, second year and was a computer scientist and has nothing to do with quantum mechanics whatsoever. And he learned like how to program a quantum computer and understand it in quite a good way with the IBM experience in mm -hmm. like a couple of months. So that was really cool. So I think it's a really good side effect, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The, the only other like side comment I'd make is even though the, it looks like quite abstract in how you're uh, giving access to doing like algorithms, you might naturally think that. Certainly at Q Control, we've found that it's really great having direct access is that you can also implicitly see the dynamics. So like the, they're being very honest about their computers um, at the oh, moment, okay. which is fantastic because it really allows us allows people to provide uh, insight not only on the algorithm side but actually on the lower level control side. I mean, yeah. for your Black Opal platform, that's that's the academic or the intended academic subscription-based platform, yeah. right? I mean, is there going to be much back and forth with the community within that platform, or is it just going to be you guys are going to develop? Well, I, I discovered last week that there'll be a lot of back and forth because I'll be the help support. So, oh, okay. <laughs> so they'll literally be able to chat with me directly when you jump on. Um, that's the benefits and disadvantages of being in a startup. But yeah, we, we're really looking for um, that it will be available to academics, um, and we're really looking forward to getting some kind of back and forth between academics, and also seeing it used on more exotic quantum platforms, which maybe are not yet at the stage of being commercially viable, but still being researched. Mm -hmm. yeah. Chris. If, if I could bring back uh, for a moment to some of the comments that Dave and Maria had each made earlier. Uh, I, really, I, I really want to strongly agree with a lot of what's been said here about uh, the power of uh, oh, having quantum programming toolkits available as a learning resource. It's something that we've seen at Microsoft a couple of times now. We've started running uh, tutorials using the Quantum Development Kit to teach quantum programming ideas both to 
members of the academic uh, quantum information re uh, community who are looking to get more hands-on and programming gets concrete cost estimates for their algorithms, debug their algorithms, but very importantly as well, bringing new people into the fold, P finding uh, interest in the classical development community and showing here, get hands-on, use your laptop to play around with these algorithms. When we ran um, the tutorials uh, with the quantum development kit here um, on Sunday, there are people who walked in the room not knowing any quantum mechanics whatsoever and left after about six hours with performing state discrimination tasks, preparing superpositions between arbitrary bit strings, uh, comfortable with Dirac notation, things like that. And a lot of what really enabled it was when they had a misunderstanding, when there was a mistake, they could run on their laptops and get the wrong answer. Mm -hmm. And that feedback really helped change the way that that learning was happening. Um, so I mean, I think there's something transformative happening with that and we're very excited to be a part of it. How do you feel, uh, what's your impression about like retention rates? So in the case of both Q Sharp and the Microsoft development and Forest and, and Rigetti's platform that's been publicly released. I mean, this is just my naive looking at it from the outside. At the very beginning, you get a swing up and people will come on, they'll download it, they'll play with it. And then of course it starts tapering off. Um, how many people do you engage with when maybe you do a hackathon or put something online who stick around? It it's hard to directly measure that, so I can't really say any specific details about. Um, but what I will say is it's both outcomes are actually positive outcomes. If somebody comes, plays around with a quantum development kit for a few days and decides um, that that's not really their thing, that's a decision that they've made and we've enabled them to see that that's what they're interested in or they're not. And if somebody does stick around, that's awesome as well, because there's a whole bunch of more learning resources coming online, such as the tutorials we've put out. There's always more and more things that are being made available in this community. Uh, I think it's, we're in an immense point of opportunity in that we can really make the quantum information community bigger. We can get more people involved. We can get people with different backgrounds involved. We can get people involved who have been told no, this isn't a community for you. And having tools, quantum programming tools out there that are accessible is a huge resource for that. Yeah. Can I, can I also yeah. say something? Actually, like, um, just to spice it up a bit, but, or be a bit provocative, actually, you guys like who spoke like the last days, you should be a bit scared about all these developments, or not scared, actually, you should take them as an opportunity, because it actually <laughs> changes a lot the methods we have in quantum computing, because, um, Numerical simulations, you know, in, in computer science conferences, you go there, you have to have a numerical simulation in your paper, otherwise they very often reject you, like, depending, unless you're in a co complexity theory. But in <laughs> very, very many, like, fields of computer science, this is actually what your, that's your daily bread, right? And these methods haven't entered quantum computing, and I only realized this in the last, like, half a year or something, how little we're actually exploring. We're only exploring the space of computation that's provable, that's kind of nicely, like, nice to write down and stuff like that. And we all have to learn like very new like methods. And it's cool, it's really exciting, right? But yeah, I think, I don't know, I want to also put this to you. Does this like 
scare you or do you feel like this is a good thing or do you, have you never thought about this actually? And this is all happening in these new software tools. How many people in this audience has used either the Rigetti system, played with Strawberry Fields, Project Q or, Project like, Q, you know, or use the IBM system? Right. So, I mean, people are using it quite extensively. Yeah, sorry, Chris. I, so there's an old saying from uh, Nuth that always comes to mind with things like this. Be careful when running the code below. I've only proved that it works, not tested it. <laughs> right? I mean, the, to speak to Maria's point, there's a whole bunch of new methods coming in to research that are software-based. And one of the things we've run into at Microsoft is whenever we go and implement an algorithm that's in a paper, we actually have yet to find a quantum algorithm in a paper that doesn't have at least one typo or bug or something like that. And in almost all cases, these are minor little things, like there's a Hadamard missing at one spot. But it, being able to actually run things and test things is again transformative in that it allows us to have a lot better confidence in the cost estimates we give for algorithms that we've not only proved the code works, we've tested it. So in the case of, of say, Microsoft platform and what you've been doing, have you had researchers sort of come to you and say, look, I've built up this circuit decomposition or I've built up this algorithm. Um, can I throw it onto your system because I've been doing it by hand. I've probably mucked it up. Has that started to happen yet? Or I, I think it's fair to say that that's just starting to happen. Uh, I've, there have been conversations to that effect. So, I mean, any of you, do you have a comment? Has anyone used the systems? Think they're great? Think they're terrible? What do these people need to do? <laughs> now that there are many options, I guess we've had this conversation before. It's great that you guys are opening it up so that we can use it for free. But why isn't it the other way around? Why aren't you paying us to use it? You know, in an engineering faculty, there are lots of partnerships between faculty members and companies who pay for faculty members to work on projects. But now that it's free, we don't have access to that resource anymore. And it's really ruining our KPIs. <laughs> I think if your project is good enough, maybe you get hired and you get paid like full time. I guess, what is the plan for partnerships with academics beyond your old buddies from when you used to be an academic? He's looking directly at me. He raises a good point. Explain yourselves. I mean, I think it, I suspect this is a very challenging question. I mean, the, the truth is, right, there's still, there is no there there yet, right? We don't have one of these machines. There's, right, the reason that investment is coming in is because there's this huge tail risk, right? We know, at least for the simulation story in an air-corrected computer, like that story is getting extremely strong and companies need to know whether they need one of these machines in five years. And, you know, it could be a $10 billion industry that just gets wiped out if you don't have it, right? And so, but to be truthful, there's no, you know, besides that, that long-term story, the short-term story, there's no, there's no product there. So the money story is going to be very muddled, I suspect, for many years until that switches around and we're having that longer conversation about this thing's really, you know, something I need, right? And then it'll transition. And so I think all the companies are trying to approach this in a way that they think is the, they're going to get the most yeah, out of it, but I think it's super challenging. Any more comments on their respective platforms or just questions about what they're doing? You know, these people don't want to talk about what they're doing internally. You've got to pry it out of them. Is there any plans from any of you to develop a quantum network or a system for distributed quantum computing? 
Anyone You're the photons. You're the photonic. <laughs> Xanadu doing repeaters. Yeah, it's, it's not one of our main focuses at the moment, yeah. But there are ideas of a photonic QRAM, let's put it like that, that are quite interesting, yeah. Yeah, it, it hasn't really been our focus either. Uh, I've actually talked to people like internal Google people who in security about quantum cryptography. It doesn't usually raise for private companies up to a high level um, simply because the forward security it provides isn't on the top of their list. They're much more interested in conversations about post-quantum cryptography because they see that as a real threat, not for like the web servers, because a web server I can change the software, but all of the, you know, your phones and all of the edge, edge devices where we're starting to, you know, we're using stuff there that's going to be broken and we can't upgrade it. And I think that story worries, worries them a lot more. Um, and so I think all the companies have, are probably involved in some way in thinking about that post-quantum crypto story. From this community, right, the thing that scares the poop out of me is that we don't have a lot of people who are working on trying to break them who have quantum expertise, right? There's, so I think that's, a, I, I think that's something that the big, the big companies like Google actually care a lot about because you know, we don't, there's a lot of uncertainty about that right now. And at least from my perspective, the, there's this huge uncertainty about whether they're actually secure against quantum attack. I mean, Michael, Q-Control in principle, it's not specific to quantum computing. Yeah, we it's, can help repeaters for sure. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, the, again, there needs to be a company which is making them, I guess. That's the thing. So um, I guess the, my, yeah, my experience in terms of talking with people about it, um, the post-quantum techniques, like the post-quantum cryptography techniques seem to be currently the most of most interest. But I guess uh, the only interesting thing that happened, um, the head of Westpac was mentioning that uh, it takes so long for them to roll out technologies as well. So even they're currently running Microsoft 1995 on some of their computers. So they, they, some companies are also simply just worried about how long it will take for them to roll out some type of post-quantum cryptography solution. And so they're also interested because of that. Um, again, like 10 to 15 years is sometimes a short time period to roll out a full technological solution to mm -hmm. something like that. <coughs> Any other comments from the audience? Yeah. In terms of the software languages, what are your thoughts on standardizing so that we don't need to learn five different languages, especially if they're all describing a very similar underlying set of operations? I'm against it. No, I mean, I think that's a good question. I, I, I believe we're, I mean, if you look at the early history of computer science, it was not true that there was one language to rule them all. Languages are tools, and I think that different companies will have develop different tools depending on what they're focused on. And I, I, while I agree, it's kind of a pain. On the other hand, I guess I'm a software engineer now. Like learning a new language is sort of what you do, right? When you're trying to solve a new problem. And I think that, I mean, that, it, you know, this is where I may differ from other people on this, but I, I, I think that the tools that are going to develop are going to bifurcate a little bit, and they're going to be focused on what the companies care about. Uh, and you'll see that in the tooling, right? So I'm a little bit skeptical of standardization. But, but however, yeah. like you can always invent the plugins, right? This will maybe come at some stage that you actually can translate between the languages quite nicely. And, and most of them are in Python, so at least you have to, you know, your basis has to be, or I don't know what you guys are. Well, I mean, Rigetti's is in Python as well, and Strawberry Fields yeah, is exactly. Python. So, so you, will always start, you will always be able to start with Python, very likely. So at least that's good. I so I, I think it is actually a little bit early to, to look into a standard. I think eventually uh, the field should, but we will, I think, make great strides by uh, trying and failing many different types of things uh, as actually the different technologies mature. I fully expect at some point, uh, you know, particular 
uh, quantum devices are going to be useful for particular uh, pieces of the entire quantum computer. So things might be better for memory, things might be better for computation, and uh, there are going to be kind of control systems and languages for that control uh, for each of them. And uh, until that kind of emerges as a clear picture, I think it's maybe a little early to start standardization. Right. If I could agree with what seems to be the general consensus here so far and uh, double down a bit even more, like I think one of the things that's really exciting at the moment is how many different languages there are and what that means in terms of the mental models we have available. It, it, I, I agree, it's early to try and say this is the one true way to write out a quantum algorithm. And in part, that's not even an expectation we have about classical algorithms. Uh, there's a huge preponderance of different classical programming languages that all have in common this idea of describing and interpreting, but that's about as far as that commonality goes. If I take something as simple as I iterate through a collection and I write it in assembly, I'll have a description of the low-level implementation. If I write in C, I'll have a description of the memory management. If I write it in Python, I might have a description of the data structure. And if I write it in Haskell, I'll have a description of how that algorithm composes with other algorithms. And all four are really useful ideas. And different programmers find different parts of that appealing. Different projects demand focus on different uh, parts of that. And I, I love that there's as many different languages that let us focus on the different parts of building a quantum algorithm. And I hope that um, we maintain that going forward. Yeah. This is more of a business question. When I talk uh, about quantum software with people doing or interested in startups, they're having a really tough time finding real applications that they can work with, with their customers and their clients. So I think there's still a big gap in what's possible now and what people will actually pay money for. My question is, in each of your organizations, do you have teams that are more customer facing? And what approaches might be taken to provide customer solutions? Yes, uh, I will say that uh, I, about 50% of my time is uh, customer facing. Uh, and customer in this sense is a, a large corporation who would like to understand more about quantum and uh, telling us uh, about their particular problems and addressing the, the issue that uh, there isn't an off the shelf, uh, you know, uh, algorithm to address all of these issues. Uh, a lot of the time, uh, there is a question of, you know, their overhead might be so enormous to map to a quantum computer uh, that it might not even fit on one of the NISC devices. Um, but that is something that we're focusing on. Uh, we're, at least at Getty, we're uh, very conscious that, uh, you know, finding value in a quantum computer doesn't necessarily uh, kind of mean hitting some mathematical benchmark or, or even actually some particular fidelity. Like if if we actually come, if we determine that you know hybrid quantum computing is actually a very very good simulation tool for molecular systems or something like that, uh, then certainly uh, you know the customers who are interested in that like we will have a solution for them. But we do spend a lot of time uh, also looking for solutions, and a lot of the times we say uh, no, not right now. Yeah, and I just I think I want to emphasize that there is actually value in the we can't solve that problem at the moment. So I think there's there's a so we're certainly reaching a bit of a hype cycle where there's so much interest in quantum computing from the business community. I think there is a, a lot of companies are being at least a lot of these companies are doing their best to be honest as well. And I think there's value in telling telling someone actually for your problem there's no hope in the next 
X years or I can't solve it right now. And for a lot of businesses at the moment, that's of great value to them and um, certainly worth going to some consultants to find out. I can also say we've got two full-time people only doing business and everyone should be like briefed. And obviously like also when you talk about applications, what scientists thinks, think are applications, what we put in our papers, it's far from <laughs> what business applications are obviously. But um, what I find actually quite interesting is it's sometimes a bit crazy how you, it's actually almost like, like a constant contradiction you're living with because you're kind of like selling something, your whole company, your existence, your salary is based on this idea that's not there yet and you know how hard it is. and. Basically, so Alexander, we often like just have meetings where we just sit and think about this and talk and then leave it again for like a day or two. Then like talk about it again and think, and it's a constant struggle almost. I think the bigger companies might not have that so much because it's longer term, they know the salaries are secure, but we know if we don't come up with something in two years, we're, we're done, right? Or however many years, right? Yeah. I find it very fun uh, <laughs> talking, like, talking to uh, companies and finding out what they care about and are willing to pay money for uh, is a great way to identify problems and a great way to you know, develop or find a niche to develop new algorithms in. And uh, it, it's actually a lot of fun than going and grabbing the kind of typical problem off the academic shelf and then just solving that one over and over again. Yeah, so I mean, I, I agree. I think, I mean, I think one of the things that this community can do is make sure that they are you know, uh, making sure they're guiding the companies correctly. There's a story that Peter Love told me one time. He said, you know, he knew D-Wave would never go away when he realized that every company they talked to had an optimization problem. If they just said the word optimization, the companies would all salivate, right? And that's a dangerous thing, right? Because um, we don't know what's there and it's easy to be optimistic because we want to be optimistic, but we have to be honest about what we can do. Um, and we do definitely engage and try to see what, we, what, we're, what we're going to do. Um, I definitely uh, think the, the, the pressures on a startup are very different right now than the pressures in the larger companies, but we don't know what, you know, we don't know what the future is going to hold as this first big hype cycle eventually turns into winter, right? <laughs> I, so I had a question myself in terms of, Nick, as you said, sort of a, a corporate or, or some other company will come to you with their specific problem, is there any efforts within any of your organizations to develop training programs? You know, you don't want to, you don't want to have to go to Westpac or, or some other corporation and say, right, half of your team now, need, now needs to take four years of quantum mechanics and then a graduate program in quantum computing. Instead, we want to boil it down to a good three months or three weeks and then at least be able to train them up. Is that something that's being considered within? Oh, can I, just make, I yeah. would say that what we're finding is that it's surprising how much value, well not surprising, I guess obvious in other cases, you can get lots of value from people from different disciplines without teaching them quantum mechanics. So Q-Control has, half our team is focused on product and half, half like have a background in other startups developing software as a service for a variety of applications and the other half have a background in quantum. Mm -hmm. And we certainly have found that um, mixing that knowledge between someone who has a history of doing back-end servers with someone who is a machine learning expert and someone who spent all their lives making beautiful pictures in Adobe Illustrator. Like, having that uh, mix of talent really produces something much better than if you had just a few people with a PhD in quantum mechanics. Um, so I think diversity is actually really exciting in these companies. Mm -hmm. And um, that's something that's really starting to occur very recently. And we're seeing, like, I don't think we will have ever got these kind of full stack, publicly available quantum computers without the diversity in these companies. 
If I could speak to that a little bit more and come back to your comment, um, Simon, about like, uh, well, four years training to go learn quantum mechanics. I think it raises an interesting question and starts to problematize the question of what does it mean to learn quantum mechanics? And there's a lot of, I think, um, that can be unpacked there and well, made more diverse, generalized in a lot of interesting ways. I mean, for one thing, we don't expect generally out of classical programming and classical development that you actually are able to explain all of the physics of the transistors that are used to make up a particular CPU or something like that. I mean, even trying to describe how a modern desktop turns on is probably a course in and of itself. Mm -hmm. But we don't let that be a barrier to getting involved in understanding what classical computers can and can't do. And I think we can draw some real inspiration from that and from the success that we've had, that IBM has had, that, uh, it, that everybody here has had in reaching out to people and saying, look, get hands-on and learn in a different way. And maybe the understanding you'll reach doesn't exactly look the way that we're used to things looking, but it's a real understanding that helps people assess problems that they care about and put concrete numbers to that. So, I, oops, sorry. I was just gonna add that the uh, training aspect uh, for us is, is we definitely believe that you should not need uh, a PhD to, to learn how to program a quantum computer. Uh, we put a lot of effort into kind of uh, documenting and actually providing educational materials at, at kind of any level of abstraction that you would like to plug into the stack, uh, either at kind of, it's a logical computer and you can simulate it, or, you know, down to the voltages that we're applying as we're, you know, doing gates and things like that. Um, and I think that helps us really address the broader community and bring in uh, people with, you know, other skills and diversify kind of what we know. Um, you know, a lot of the NISC uh, algorithms are actually coming from other fields, uh, and, and they were developed mostly you know, for other purposes and then are kind of ported over. And so we've found that, at least in terms of training, it's incredibly valuable to provide a number of plug-in areas for people uh, at any level of the stack. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah? With regards to the hype surrounding quantum computing, do you guys pay any attention to the possible misuse of hype uh, within the popular press and the media? Check my press release tomorrow. <laughs> I think all the companies are always try not to hype things, but then we get invited to say things up here, and there's somebody in the audience who then reports on what we say, right? So uh, there, I think almost all the companies don't want to play the hype cycle, uh, just like most people in the community don't. But it's also very hard because you're in a situation where you're not sharing everything, and then you know we sort of get in this weird information-starved era. I tend to think there's very little you can do to stop hype cycles. They sort of take off. I mean, I was working in machine learning before this, uh, and you know, quantum computing isn't even like it's not even a fraction of that, right? Like you know, you go to NIPS and you, you want to see hype. There's it's a, it's an entirely different level. Um, so I think all of the companies try, from my perspective, extremely hard not to. But it's hard because they're seen as you know, pushing important directions, and so anything you say gets pushed up. Um, so I could say something really bad right now, and then like, next thing I know, I'm in like, the New York Times. That'd be kind of cool, but. <laughs> so you're saying you're announcing a quantum computer tomorrow, right? Yesterday. <laughs> 
No, but other people may want to say something. But it's a very good question. I mean, I do think, you know, you got to remember most of the people who are in the industry are also coming from academia, right? It's not like these people are, uh, I mean, it's not totally true now. There's definitely people from a wider diversity, but a lot of people came from that background and don't really want to be, you know, seen as, as pushing the hype cycle. Um, you know, and frankly, we have a problem with journalism. No offense if they're journalists in here, but, you know, there's been some crazy headlines. You say something and the next thing you know, yeah. Actually, I was, you know, Google had this, like, what was it again? Like, this thousand times speed up result a couple of years back. And exactly on that day when it came out, I think we had a workshop, QML workshop on NIPS, and Hartmut, like the head of the yeah. software group, was coming. And he said, like, we've got this result that for a very specific problem we engineered, we can do something very small. And at the same time, I, looked, I opened my computer and I saw, like, Google can have the thousand times speed up to quantum computing. And I thought, like, whoa, poor guy, right? <laughs> That's all right. Our conference chair broke Bitcoin yesterday, according to some papers in Australia. <laughs> oh, really? Yes. <laughs> Thank you. That's our service to the world. <laughs> but if someone bullshits inside the scientific community, then just kick them in the bum and say, like, it's not necessary because... So you've up. Uh, just to go back to the question of training or bringing people in without years of training in quantum mechanics, while programming languages can be used to train and maybe people can be taught to program, quantum computers without detailed knowledge of what a qubit is. But, I mean, to program, people don't need to know what a quantum Fourier transform is. They need to know what amplitude amplification is. Uh, each of you work in relatively diverse teams, talking with scientists and non-scientists and people who don't necessarily work in quantum computing. How do you get past that barrier, for, for example, in describing what a quantum Fourier transform is? I guess but one element is not everyone has to be an expert in everything in every company. It's just one important point. So it is, it's a combining a bunch of specialists who have knowledge in each domain and then solving each part of a problem together is also really, it is exceptionally useful. And I think we always are trying to inform everyone within our company elements of quantum mechanics. But I think it's important to remember not to dismiss ideas and talent from someone who doesn't understand what a ket is. So there, because there are so many challenges we're facing that I think um, we really have to embrace innovation in every sector, really. It, if I could address part of uh, the question that was asked. Um, I mean, I, I don't know that I entirely agree with the example of a quantum Fourier transform being the basic element that everybody needs to know. And I mean, again, coming back to classical, it, if you're working in digital signal processing, if you're working in graphics, a number of other domains, you need to know what the fast Fourier transform is and the fast Hadamard Walsh transform and all of those, and you need to know them inside out. Um, but on the other hand, there's a lot of things where if, a lot of domain areas where if that's something you use occasionally, there are good libraries for, like FFTW, and building library development, it, that kind of points to that building library development can be a way to make that sort of learning more gradual. Uh, there's the QFT operation in the quantum development kit, for instance, that you can call. And it's open source so that as you want to learn more, probe that understanding, you can pry open that box and see how it's written. You can, and that enabling people to do things with an incomplete understanding is I think one of the ways we reached that sort of diversity that was mentioned earlier in terms of backgrounds, and it's a way that we can broaden problem domains. I mean, it, there's too much quantum information for any one person to know. Everybody is going to be missing some building blocks. I mean, ask your, it, it, like, 
even within peer research, right? Not everybody knows all the details of error correction. Not everybody knows all the details of phase estimation. Not everybody knows the details of circuit synthesis. <laughs> Touche. <laughs> All right, so one counterexample. But, <laughs> but so I mean, it, I, I think it really points, though, to that we, we need to be able to talk to each other, and we need to be able to get things done with incomplete understandings in a way that allows us to iterate on those understandings and deepen them uh, gradually. So, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, part of the motivation, especially in the, in the case of companies who have put platforms or are going to put platforms online, is hopefully the more general community, computing community, might find something of use. Considering that as far as a simulator goes or even as far as these few initial chipset goes, you can only talk, you know, 20, 50, maybe 72 qubits soon. Um, how likely is this? I mean, how optimistic are you within your own companies to, to think that, okay, it's not going to be a quantum algorithms person. It's going to be somebody jumping on our system and finding something really, really cool. So, uh, I mean, this sort of gets back to the previous question in some way. I don't think, I don't actually don't think the companies are unified in how they're approaching this. Uh, for instance, I don't think, uh, at Google, I don't think we're actually as focused. Well, I mean, so I, I agree strongly that bringing more people in uh, is useful. Um, I worry that the that you know the type of like describing this the the methodologies you use in say machine learning when you're doing research and trying to build up a new uh, you know a new model that's a very challenging task uh, and I do worry a lot that we need to design tools for the very challenging tasks of NISC algorithms. So I think at Google, we're trying to focus on that. And it's going to come across maybe to everyone else as we're not as, uh, we're not as pedagogical in some ways, because we are focused on that. That's what we're trying to do. I mean, our own teams are going to be using our tools that are doing this. And if you know, uh, you know, I need Ryan in the back to be able to write you know, code on the stuff that I'm doing. And you know, Ryan knows a lot about uh, simulation and chemistry, right? And he's a very different target for a software tool than uh, an average developer. So I do think you'll see differences in that as a function of time. Uh, uh, not, which is not to say that I actually don't think one of the most interesting things to watch is the, that it is certainly true that tools enable people who previously couldn't imagine doing something to, to enter into a field. I think that's an amazing thing. I work with an engineer, Craig Gidney, who is totally self-taught in quantum computing. Right, and he has an amazing skill for it, and you know he built his own simulator, and now is working at Google on quantum computing, and you know that type of background is really useful. But I do also think some of the tooling will be focused more on on advanced users. What's Rigetti's approach to this, or hope, shall we say? So we certainly believe that uh, external users can provide a lot of value. Uh, that's, that's part of kind of what is motivating a lot of the documentation, how we're even building the tools. Uh, and so uh, I don't think that, you know, for the example of like, do you need to know all of the intricacies of a particular algorithm? Uh, you know, we're doing a good job when you don't have to do that. When we've abstracted it enough and explained it at that higher level abstraction, that someone external to the field can come in and use it uh, without having to learn all of the details. Of course, like 
you know, then validating that thing and going through the due diligence that it maybe provides a speed up or provides value, certainly so that's where an expert needs to step in and, and help them kind of, you know, bring the full weight of, of academia behind them and evaluating it. Uh, but I think from, like in the interim, it's, it's going to be our goal at least to, to provide enough, enough tools uh, and enough infrastructure such that we can kind of open the door wide enough. Uh, and uh, that, that's, I think, one of the, the big guiding principles, at least on the software and, and kind of project development side at Rigetti. Yeah, right. Can I really also, like we're always thinking of, so I don't know, Alexandra, I've never heard anyone saying like someone will come and like give us the algorithm that is the application that we're looking for or something. But um, we're always thinking like again in this like old fashioned way of like there's an algorithm and it has the speed up and it has this application. I always think that we're always circling around the same things here. And as you say, like having actually other people on board just to give you a concept of what's needed. So I'm super sorry to say this, like, but I repeat, like maybe quantum supremacy is actually not the thing. And we're always thinking of like these near term devices to be these like faulty little things that we have to squeeze some use out of for the waiting period until mm -hmm. we've got this like universal quantum computer. But maybe, so for example, in, in classical computer science, like a lot of applications are actually, or a lot of computers that are developed are very special purpose. They can be simulated on like digital computers, yes, but like ASICs, FPGAs, like little, little things that can, for example, only do matrix multiplication, but they do it just a little bit faster. So maybe like one of our like little chips won't actually end up being a quantum computer, but it forks off almost like an evolutionary tree and we actually get a special purpose device that's really useful for this one thing only, right? So, and this, I sometimes have the feeling like quantum computing people think so inside the box that they can't even provide that, mm -hmm. <laughs> that idea, but that it has to come from the outside. Right, right. Yeah. Can you talk about any case studies as of now where a quantum computer has done better than a classical computer at anything? So I think the case in chemistry is pretty well documented. Uh, there are... Uh, there are actually a number of papers that show that even using uh, kind of one of the these hybrid algorithms that is not kind of doing a the full air corrected kind of simulation of a Hamiltonian but kind of does this uh, variational version some Monte Carlo version of, of kind of simulating one of these things the quantum device actually gives you uh, the ability to prepare a very different set of distributions efficiently. Um, and that's quite useful for chemistry because there are re regimes when it's just very difficult to solve, and it's common that those regimes actually are very useful to know, and it's useful to know something about that problem. Uh, and the phenomena itself is not quantum mechanical? Um, yeah, maybe, maybe, so this is an insufficient example, but maybe out of machine learning, you know, these, so these were like incremental results, but like for example, to sample from a quantum computer, you can like train you know, Boltzmann machines, which is a machine learning model, and then they've shown that at least if you train classically, you can kind of like at a certain point get maybe a better, so I'm here not talking about a speed up in a quantum algorithm again, but I'm talking about actually building a better model, so training a model in a, in a way so that it classifies better, like getting your test error down. And actually, I'm, I'm hoping that this will be something that we can exploit a bit more, actually increasing qualities of, of machine learning models rather than speeding up known algorithms. Yeah, I think that's a good point. The RBMs are not, per, were not pursued by the classical machine learning community because they are so expensive to train. Uh, like that was very well known uh, and it just wasn't an avenue of models that was pursued. Uh, and if you know, a, a quantum computer can give you uh, an ability to train that, it, it gives you a much more diverse set of things that you can start to explore. Uh, 
Still not competitive, but you know. <laughs> yeah. Just some more, yeah. So you guys are all from different companies, and in some sense, you're all in competition with one another. But on the other hand, the field is still quite open and friendly, and you even sometimes write papers together. Can you comment on how you guys decide what problems you will collaborate on, and what are the secrets you will keep from each other? Yes. Tell us the secrets you're keeping from each other. <laughs> I mean, it's still an outsider field, right? Quantum computing is not mainstream, you know, despite the hype uh, across everything, right? So I think we all draw different lines. Certainly the hardware stories, people are much more aware of, of trying not to talk about things because there are a lot of secret sauces. But those, I think, will dissipate. You know, so I have the shirt on. My shirt is the Traitorous Eight. <laughs> So it's the eight people who left Shockley Semiconductor uh, to farm Fairchild, right, and sort of started Silicon Valley. And then in the history of that story, one of the most interesting things is, is those company, the people from those companies also then founded a bunch of other companies and intermixed. And we haven't quite hit that yet, but I suspect that that will happen. And there's always, there's only sort of a shelf life that will happen. And that was, that's actually one of the beautiful things about Silicon Valley is that that mixing time just always happens and you kind of get used to it. Uh, and so you, you try to be secret, but you know that in five years it's going to dissipate, right? So, anyone else want to add to that? Which um, one of you is going to be the traders and leave your I'm, respective I'm happy companies. to be a trader. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, like my president? <laughs> oh, daring is too soon. <laughs> I, no, I mean I, 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 I mean I think that's all. Uh, I, I broadly agree, but I also like to kind of focus on the positive, that there is still exactly, as you say, a lot of collaboration going on um, and a lot of community building going on around this. And um, I mean, I think to some degree that can be enabled in some very nice ways that we, there's a lot of things like grant deadlines that we don't have hanging over our heads as much. Um, and, and I, I don't know, I think there's a lot of opportunity, it, there's still a lot of opportunity to be collaborative, uh, and in part because we know there's a lot of work still to be done. Yeah, and the, another thing that I, another thing that's important to say is that the, it is, one of the things you hear, and as a theorist, this used to, usually drives you nuts, is this division between theorist and experimentalist, and the division between <laughs> industry and academia is similar. I just don't find it very useful. I actually find it kind of counterproductive to make, I mean, it's true, and they have different demands and different ways in which they work. It's certainly true. But a lot of my, I mean, my feeling is often that a lot of stuff in quantum computing goes slower because theorists and experimentalists have a hard time talking to each other, right? And so we really need to work on that across academia and industry in the same way that that theory experiment divide causes issues, right? Um, so I think, I'll just add yeah. one, one final version of that. Uh, I think one of the things that motivates at least me for deciding when to collaborate is my fear that the quantum computing field uh, will, will collapse before <laughs> anything interesting happens. Uh, and so any way that, uh, that is, we, we kind of mitigate that outcome, and that can be through collaboration, uh, I am very happy to take that step. Uh, fear is a wonderful driver. Joe. There were some questions earlier about people having to learn about quantum Fourier transforms, etc., and how to get people to the stage where they contribute something useful. But in general, how do you see the current state of algorithms research in general and the number of people involved in making a contribution? 
<clears throat> so there's a phrase I've started to learn um, and having moved from academia to industry about a year ago, and that's dog food, right? Eating your own dog food, right? There's a lot of way, it, and it refers to this idea that we use the tools we develop and send out to the world ourselves. Um, there's a lot of that I've talked about and others here have talked about uh, with respect to reaching out to external users, but it's as important to reach out to people within our companies who have different backgrounds and different sets of expertise to try and enable research. And I think that's the thing that we're starting to see more and more of, where um, it's easier to test ideas, it's easier to get concrete cost estimates in our own research for the exact same reason that it's easier to teach people outside uh, each of our companies. Um, it's easier when we have a team with diverse backgrounds for each member of that team to catch the others up in a similar way. So, I mean, in the case specifically of Google and Microsoft, I mean, these are huge, huge outfits. You've got team members doing everything. I mean, how much internal interest do you get? How many people, you know, annoying everyone with updating Excel for the 475th millionth time says, well, I'm going to come do quantum computing or I mean, does it happen much? Is there much internal turnover? A turnover, I'm not oh. sure I'd use that word, yeah, but um, word. there certainly is a lot of internal interest. Um, and people do try and reach out to us and say, hey, we want to learn more about from inside the company. And I think that's awesome. Can I add a sentence? I would really like to see more people working on near-term algorithms. So. I mean, people can stay where they are, but like, it would be cool to have new people on board who, who do more like of the, what can I do with 100 qubits algorithms? That would be helpful, <laughs> yeah. Chris? Just to follow up on that, I get a feeling from some of the comments that coming back to an academic conference, you may see a big difference between what your customers are looking for and what the academics are working on. Do you feel that way? And the second question is that if you do, should more academics be looking at the problems that your customers are interested in? For free. For free. But, 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 but that's, maybe, that's maybe a key point, is that as an though there's a, there is a shifting environment going on, um, at least two of us. I don't know how many of us have shifted from academia to private, but I think um, you should actually think a little bit carefully about if you are going to try and provide value, real value to people, where you want to be positioned and where the best place is to do that. Um, so I think I, I would be pro every academic trying to make more algorithms to make these quantum computers happen faster. But I think, um, I think also everyone in this room should think again about maybe joining one of these companies. We're certainly looking for talent, um, for sure, in the near term. And I'm, I'm pretty sure everyone on this panel would be looking for talented people. So I, I, think, I think there is a nice opportunity now for people to think a little bit outside of just the, the, the closed academic box maybe that they did in the past with regard to quantum research. There, there really is a change happening at the moment. I think in answer to that, I'd like to come back to something that uh, Dave said earlier about the words theorist and experimentalist and the words um, academic and industry, sorry, academia and industry being limiting in the same fashion. But I think there's always a temptation to come back to describing the world in terms of theorists and experimentalists or in terms of academics and uh, industry because at some level it feels different. It is a different set of skills that go into that and we need to do a much better job of knocking down those divides and collaborating 
but I think that has to start with also appreciating that we need both sets of skills, we need both sets of ways of looking at things together. And I think that for there to be rich industry and academic collaboration, it really helps that there are a lot of the more abstract building blocks and algorithms that get, uh, develop, uh, that get developed and researched and things like that that are not directly immediately tied to a, a customer application. That that's a place where I think collaboration works really well by making sure that there is focus on both ends of the whole applied versus abstract spectrum there. So I have a bit of a radical opinion because I think academia should never be inspired by industry if they can help it, to be honest, because this is the sad thing when we now start like having discussions. So for example, at the IBM Think you, there was a conference on like near-term applications and stuff and everyone, everyone was always talking about we get value and we like reach our goals and I always thought what is now our goal? Our goal is to earn a lot of money and this is actually not what most of us started out from so yeah I would find it sad if actually academia follows these footsteps. I think when I say like let's look into near-term things in academia as well it's not to make customers happy but that would literally be just to change a bit our mindset of what we do for 25 years now or 30 years it's time to like do that within academia, for, no, not for money reasons, but for just refreshing things a bit, right? And I also, sorry, if I may say this, also a bit for the structures, actually, because, so, I don't know how many people here are past PhD, just around postdoc level, but I don't know if you share, but my frustration about academia, that it's this, like, military system that forces you, like, now to, like, actually disrude your family, like take them to different countries and work like 90% on jobs you really hate or doing funding proposals for your supervisor. I mean, I've got a really nice, I had a very nice supervisor, I'm not saying, but, <laughs> but I'm just like, and then university politics come on top and I think like when I'm actually through this whole like 10 years of just licking butt and trying to do whatever like people think I should do, I'm a professor, so I'm actually doing funding proposals all the time and getting frustrated and trying to like push my ego. I don't know, I don't see the appeal anymore and I wonder if this is something that universities could learn from from actually from industry without getting more money focused. None of our VCs are in the room, are they? Sorry, I'm, I apologize <laughs> if this is recorded or something. But like, some of you might share this feeling. And this is like, I think industry like opens a couple of careers for these like desperate souls to say like, I'm not doing this anymore. Or I don't want to do this actually. And I was at this point actually. That, yeah, so I'm quite happy that it is there. <laughs> Uh, maybe maybe I'll just refine my comment a tiny bit. I just I just don't want I don't want to don't want to completely. I think I think there really is an important role for academia, obviously, in the future. But there, academia, I think, at its best, is solving fundamental problems about the universe and really opening completely new ideas, which are just unviable in in the private space. So I'm just saying, if you're the type of person who's maybe thinking about doing something which is really going to make a difference in the short term and an applied sense. Um, think a little bit outside the academic box. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. <laughs> well, as academics, we follow what our supervisors did. And the problems that we work on are the problems that we think are important because our supervisors said they were important. Has the quantum information community just been focused on problems that are not that interesting? Or is there a subset of problems that you can learn from customers that are interesting and fundamental problems not being studied in academia because we've only just been basically following our supervisors. I'm going to totally cop out of this question and say that I've only been in quantum information for two and a half years, so uh, I can't say for sure. But uh, I think uh, it's getting an industry perspective on what problems that they have is very different from learning the types of problem 
uh, or learning kind of in this organic fashion of what problems are you should be tackling in an academic setting. Uh, I find it refreshing. Uh, it's just different. Uh, I think they have a particular motivation. The other panelists have articulated why, very clearly why that might not be something that you might want to uh, blindly follow. Uh, but it is just another data point to take in terms of defining uh, an interesting problem that that you know one might go tackle. Um, certainly in the chemical space where I come from, uh, I think that there is a very clear role that academia should play, uh, and there is a bridge that can be crossed over to to industry. Um, and I've seen something very similar similar in this field as well. I, I think that you know the results that people have kind of. Uh, worked on because they think the problems are very interesting and important to to, to identify are, are very important to moving us towards applications and things that maybe I would use uh, in, in more of an industrial setting to, to answer a customer's problem. Without that fr that framework and that that base, uh, you know, I don't, I don't think we would be able to do those things. I would add, uh, so as I'm talking speed up, I think to demolish this like belief that everything that's important in quantum computing has to do with getting better asymptotic speed up. Maybe it was good, it was like a good, I don't want to say crutch, like, but it was a good like, kind of like way of thinking for like a lot of time, but it was basically because we were limited. So now let's break out of this a little bit. So that's my, my idea about this. Yeah, I mean, oh, sorry. I, I slightly disagree, which I is I, I still, you know, I still think we don't really understand why quantum computers give speed up and academia cares a lot about that. When I hear the talks at this conference, I don't think immediately like, I mean, I, some of them I think, oh yeah, that has no application of what Google's doing in the next two to three years. But some of them I can definitely put in a context of 10 years. I think that's always what academia wants to do. I mean, academia plays a lot of lip service to long-term thinking. Now you actually have an opportunity to not be as involved in the short-term thing, right? You can think about these things. I think asymptotics are always a great way to think about it when you're thinking about long-term problems. Um, but I also agree with you that there might be some reason to not do that in the short term, right? Um, uh, you know, uh, I personally, when I think about like who do I want to, to come and work at Google, you know, I like people who are gonna write a lot of code that's gonna be useful for using the machine to do something interesting, right? That's what I care about right now. But that shouldn't influence the entire field, right? The field should be thinking long-term about where quantum computing is gonna go. And I think we still have major mysteries, right? We don't really know what's going on, right? And I still have lots of hope that brilliant people in this audience will figure that out, right? Uh, if I could um, it slightly contrast with that and also defend my honor. I don't think I, I've ever been accused of following like, uh, <laughs> blindly supervisor's ideas. I mean, we, the two of us certainly had enough there. But no, I mean, I... Well, we've got a fight now. No, I, <laughs> um, all joking aside, I mean, I, I think, and I totally agree with that long-term thinking really is one of the ways where academia can really provide a lot in that sense of collaboration. But I think it's also really important to be aware uh, of what challenges are faced there and how to deal with those. And I'm not even meaning technical challenges. I mean in terms of that there's a lot of short-term thinking that comes in in the supervisory system. There's a lot of short-term thinking that comes in terms of I need a grant, I need citations to get that grant. I'm going to go publish a paper on a topic that is especially trendy at the moment. And we're starting to see more things push back against that from the academic side, and I think that's really healthy. And I think that that can be a way to make sure that 
long-term thinking really is an area where uh, academia can continue to excel. Yeah. Two questions. The first is, can you talk about research internships or recruitment processes that you all have? The second is, are you looking to build more application-specific quantum technology? Such an example could be the idea of this zero quantum channels where you add them together and they can be combined into something more. I think that's great. And I think we'll answer the first question first and we'll just rattle down the line because that, that was a very good point to be raised. Yeah. Um, Internships and... Yeah, with regard options. to Q-Control, just um, go to the website qcontrol.com and send us an email and we'll get back to you. Yeah. We've got nothing formalised, but you can approach us. We've got two learner interns at the moment. One is grade nine, who's like interning for a month. So yeah, just speak to us informally. So Google has an official you know, way you can apply. You can also reach out to any of the Google people. Good, good to ping them. Come talk to us about the process. Uh, it's a, you know, we have a movie named after us, so for interns. <laughs> Uh, um, okay. It's not like that. It's not like that. <laughs> that was nominated um, for something, wasn't it? Uh, maybe worst movie. <laughs> anyway, uh, Microsoft has a really good internship program. I've been continually blown away by uh, the the people that we get coming through our uh, group as interns. And if that's something that interests you, I strongly encourage you to apply. Absolutely amazing. I did it last year. <laughs> yeah. uh, Rigetti as well uh, supports uh, undergraduate and graduate interns, at least on the theory side. Uh, you can uh, apply through our website or reach out to me directly. So did anyone want to address the other second question, which was the application specific quantum computing? <laughs> <laughs> no, no one. <laughs> to be honest, I'm not sure I understood the question. Can you try to Give us one sentence. Well, I was thinking about something in quantum communications or machine learning or some, some other kind of thing that you could program and run faster uh, compared to classical. Well, not for us at the moment. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think we are asking a good question, which is where should we be looking for things where that's going to occur? And I think that's that's a good. I mean, that's a very academic way of approaching it. I will use the bad word. No, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, I think that's actually a really good thing, right? Is to try to think through. Like when I think about, I want people who can write, you know, code that will run on the near-term machines and that we can explore it. But I also want people who are trying to think through what are the reasons that the quantum computer might offer advantage. And you know, all of the things that we learn about in quantum computing and are doing research on are inspirations for things that we might discover. You do have to do this switch, which I agree with, which is the sort of rigor versus not rigor. It may be that that's the inspiration. You can't prove it, but you can run it, and we see what happens. I, if I could raise a slight point of contrast to that. I, I, I mean, I don't see asymptotic versus constant, for instance, as rigor versus not rigor, so much as asking different kinds of questions, which both, I think, have very valuable places in understanding quantum algorithms. Well, um, asymptotics doesn't need to mean long-term and non-asymptotics is short-term. Like, there's other things around in the world than asymptotics to benchmark systems, even theoretically, I think. There are. There's also asymptotics. And I think that both of those are really important. Yeah. Any other questions? Yeah? It appears like everyone here is representing a company that is either based here 
in the US or Canada, I was curious about Chinese companies and where are they considering they're sponsoring this event? Are any of you working actively with Chinese companies? No, 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 no. We, the, the Chinese companies were invited to participate. Ranyao couldn't make it. Yeah, I'm, so, I'm Baidu. Yes. <laughs> Dave is Baidu. Headline, Google says. <laughs> <laughs> So is there how much how much of your companies, for example, engaging with the Chinese, Alibaba, Baidu? Uh, we have not had as much uh, collaboration, but I think we would be as open to it uh, as we are open to collaboration with other uh, other companies. For the moment, until our respective governments decide otherwise. <laughs> It's a good question. Is there a Chinese startup as such? Only quantum computing? Yeah, there, yeah. there, there is certainly a, there's a rapidly evolving Chinese quantum computing approach. I'd say, I, I, I can't speak too broadly, but I'd say that Q-Control would be more than willing to work with a Chinese company. Um, it's, it's just a very different uh, landscape to work in, let's say. Yeah. Can you speak to the range of educational programs that are being developed internally at your companies? Or is it something you're thinking more about outsourcing to academics? So are you talking about particular educational programs? Are we outsourcing those? Is that what you're asking? Or more just waiting for someone else to address this? Ah, uh, so uh, we certainly do have outreach programs. Uh, actually, pretty early on, we uh, at Rigetti, we kind of decided that even if we were able to hire every superconducting qubit physicist on the planet, that would not be enough to build a, a scalable uh, company. Uh, and so we started a program internally, at least, that will, that will kind of take uh, undergraduate physics majors or computer science or, or any of the physical science disciplines and actually teach them everything that at least we think is ne necessary to succeed um, kind of doing quantum uh, research uh, to, to develop the devices and things like that. Uh, so that's an internal effort. Uh, externally, uh, we do have training programs uh, for people who, who are interested. Uh, we're certainly continuing to develop that, uh, but we're not waiting for someone to come and, and help us with that. It's certainly a pressing need now. Anyone else want to comment? Um, I mean, I can speak to that Microsoft is, um, you know, acting in that space. I mean, that's one of the things that's bringing me here to Sydney this week, for instance, is the tutorials uh, last weekend in uh, Q-sharp and the quantum development kit. Um, and those, as, I've, as I mentioned, I think those are valuable not just for teaching our particular approach in terms of Q-sharp, but also quantum information more broadly. Um, none of that is to preclude or to diminish the value of what anybody else is doing or, you know, from the academic side, what education has been going on for years and is continuing to go on. But we're also very happy that we can also participate in that outreach space and offer educational materials like those tutorials that people find useful. Uh, for Xenodo, I can say that we are uh, partnering with the Constructive Destruction Creative Destruction Lab, I don't even know myself, CDL in, in Toronto, and that's actually quite an interesting thing. It's, a, it's an incubator for quantum machine learning startups, and it's kind of like 
So they had an incubator for quantum computing startups there because, and for machine learning, so it's like two programs of the same incubator. And then Peter Wittek, I don't know if you know him, who's always crazy and does things like five years before anyone else even thinks about it and brings people into quite a bit of trouble for that. He said, like, let's make a quantum machine learning startup incubator. So let's take these, like, students from all over the world and give them a real hard task. And so that's quite a cool program. So I'm just advertising for that as well. So that's where we kind of, like, we do a lot of tutorials and work with, the, with those people together. So we've hit 7 o'clock, which was the scheduled ending time on this. I mean, everyone's getting a little bit tired, a little bit restless. Um, if anyone wants to ask one or two last questions, um, try and pry something out of these people that they shouldn't tell us. I was just wondering, how much of a blank check do you guys have? <laughs> Perfect. That, I think it's a Let's great one to end on. <laughs> <laughs> Not very much, and the money's colored. <laughs> I mean, the funding, you know, why are these things funded and things like that is a challenging question, right? So, I mean, Google and Microsoft certainly have big piles of cash that I sometimes go and stare at. Um, no, but more seriously, I mean... A number, you know, Dave. We want a number. <laughs> you want a number. I mean, I don't think, I don't think anybody knows what that is. It, you know, each of the companies has different ways and why are they being funded, right? And so, um, I think an interesting thing to, to watch over the next couple of years is just does that continue, right? And I don't, you know, I don't think any of us really know because that is at the whim somewhere up on the ladder, right? Like fundamentally that's where it matters is what the people who are making long-term strategic decisions do. Um, you know, I, I, I will tell you that um, Sergey Brin once approached Ike Chuang about quantum computing and apparently Ike scared him away and so now we have Google. Uh, he literally went and did pay drink instead. So, uh, you know, so, you know, there's definitely, ex the company is definitely very excited about it. So I think that's good for me. Um, but I don't know right in the long term because, you know. You nicely evaded the question. I did, 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 did I, did I? Because I don't know what the number is, right? Like, I don't, you know, I can't go up to, to any of those guys and say, like, hey, how much are you going to spend? I mean, I could, but they'd probably not tell me. <laughs> but, but there's one, one interesting thing in the tech industry. Like, people are always, like, so innocent. So, like, basically, like, the old Wall Street people are, like, kind of the new tech people, right? They are earnest. They're, like, global changes. They are, like, and I have sometimes the feeling they kind of dodge their responsibility of saying, like, you know, I'm just playing. I'm just a little scientist. I'm just, like, you know, I'm super rich, but I'm not actually interested in the money. And I think this attitude is actually, sometimes I find it a bit strange, you know. I mean, the, the other invalid. thing to say is that, you know, that the, the quantum computing is a field where you can really, the story you can tell now, especially with simulation, is a pretty strong one from a, a long-term investment. But companies have to make strategic decisions about their capital. They can wait, right? They can just say, we're not going to do this now, right? Amazon or right? Facebook, <laughs> right? Like, you know, maybe they're doing it now. Uh, but they can wait and make that decision, right? And so I think that's an, another interesting thing that's going on, right? Companies can just say, it's not the right time yet, but we, or we need to have, you know, at least some skin in the game. So there's a lot of that type of calculation. I'm skeptical that anybody really knows what they're doing, but. Facebook quantum computing company. My God. <laughs> I, I mean, I can, uh, I, I mean, much of what you say is pretty familiar. I agree pretty broadly. So I'll try and focus more on how things feel a little different in some ways is that Microsoft really is long-term invested in this and has been for a quite long time. I mean, Microsoft's involvement in quantum information and uh, in quantum computing research stretches back to what, about 98? Like, I mean, there's been a long investment at Microsoft and 
that really is a wonderful thing. I don't know if I'd call it a blank check, but it means we've, we have the ability to really explore long-term solutions to challenging problems. Mick, you've got the last one. We've all heard of the national initiative that's in Congress in the US at the moment, waiting to be approved. How much do you think this is going to be a game changer? And what do you think your involvement should be? Well done, Mick. It's a hard question, <laughs> Mick. <laughs> I mean, those, I think we're all very supportive of the national initiatives, right? And the question is going to be, how do those national initiatives allocate their resources and what, they're, what are they going to focus on? And, you know, I think that's going to be a hard thing to sort out, right? Because, um, act, you know, industry does have a certain advantages and academia has advantages. And I think figuring that out is going to be really, I, I mean, I'm kind of fascinated to watch, right? Um, you know, we could also hit a huge recession and it all dries up. And, how does the, t I mean, how do you foresee the talent pipeline coming out of things like this? I mean, do you find it hard to recruit? Yeah, I mean, I think all companies say there are not enough people, especially in the long term. Not, I mean, so it's, it's kind of a good job option to start right now, I guess, mm -hmm. quantum computing. Let's say if the winter doesn't come too soon and then you have to find <laughs> another job for a while and then you can come back or something like that. But, but yeah, I think every, every, you hear that everywhere that actually it's a lack of people. Okay, I think everyone's ready for a beer or a harder drink, so <laughs> let's thank everyone on the panel and thank everyone for staying late. And that's it for today, and that's it for TQC. Join us tomorrow for QSML.